if you participate and you feel like it's a fair fight, whether you'd rather win than lose, but even if you lose, at least you feel like you got a chance. Never having gotten a chance is hard. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge, and today I am excited to welcome Pam Smith to the show. Pam, I told you, I warned you, I always have the guests do their own hello intro and tell the audience all about yourself for those who don't know you yet. Terrific, and thank you so much, um, Ledge. I've got to get used to that. I was asking you if you were Dave or David, and they responded with Ledge, which kind of threw me off for a sec, um, but it's all good. I get that a lot. Yeah. There you go. I, I love it. Being a marketer, I'm that's, well uh, you know, yeah. anything you do to brand <laughs> yourself is a good thing. Um, so as um, Ledge said, I'm Pam Smith. I'm thrilled to be here today. I am uh, dialing in from sunny California. Very glad not to have been in Europe yesterday, which was boiling and, you know, being the perfect place. I um, serve as chief marketing officer of a company called Globality. At Globality, we help um, the largest enterprises in the world better handle their procurement. Um, and the nice cherry on top is not only do we save them money, give them hopefully better suppliers that create better outcomes for the companies, but we also help them potentially source more diverse suppliers. Um, being a woman in Silicon Valley for more years than I'd like to admit. Um, seeing that was a really terrific, um, you know, little carrot for me as I looked at joining. I've been here for about three months, so I'm still pretty new. And be- I've had a long career in tech marketing. I started working in a firm called Regis McKenna. When I joined, Jeffrey Moore was writing Crossing the Chasm. Anybody who is a tech marketer probably knows about the whole concept of early adopters and bowling pins and tornadoes and all the things he talks about. So I'm very much a student of really understanding the psychology of buyers and how do you get them to be willing to consider a somewhat risky value proposition because all of tech is a little risky. Um, So I did that for 10 years. And along the way, I had two kids. And when my oldest got into kindergarten and my youngest was um, out of diapers, I thought my life was really calm. So I decided that rather than tell people what to do, I would go do it. And I made the move to, I guess somebody was, people would say the bright side and have run marketing for a number of emerging growth companies, the world's largest call center outsourcer. I ran um, U.S. North American marketing for Telefonica, the big Spanish telcos um, innovation unit. Um, and then most recently, I ran marketing for Anaplan, had the privilege of helping them go public. And they were doing planning software, connected planning software. I was able to invent that category called connected planning. So it's fun now when I see it written up and analysts talking about it. And then my um, last gig before this one was at Intap, a vertical software player that was um, serving investment banks, 
private equity, legal firms, accounting firms, consulting firms, and also help take them public. So I guess my stock and trade these days is helping companies go through hyper growth and through a liquidity event. Um, so it's fun. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. That'll make you a pretty popular person to have around. Yeah. Well, at least it was before the market crashed recently, but yes. <laughs> hey, markets always come back, you know? So right. I, I think I think there's no worry about that. I mean, what would you say is the common thread through those experiences? Because you got different industries, you sort of have different approaches and sectors and, you know, B2B sort of different targets and, you know, small, large, I don't know, like, how's it all, Yeah. how does it all ramp to where you're at? Yeah. And then you add on to it. I was a French major in college. So try to figure that out. But I actually say my French major was super helpful to me because when you work in tech and not being a techie, you know, people go, blah, 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 blah. And there's all this gobbledygook about what is the tech itself. And I always think tech is like another language. It's like French. And so a lot of what I do is I translate tech speak into people speak. And I think that's really foundational for any kind of business, big, small, across a lot of different sectors. Because really, you know, what marketing's role is, is to try to make narratives accessible to the potential recipient and hopefully accelerate their interest in the particular product or company and therefore accelerate their time to buy. Um, and so being able to do that translating function and seeing the patterns, li really listening to um, how do people talk, how do they think, and what are their hesitancies, that's not unlike writing an essay about a French novel. You know, that sounds kind of funny, yeah. but it's really worked no, out well that. for me throughout my career. I, I think those perspectives are important. And I mean, so much of you're right. Like, and I, you know, I said before we started recording, you know, I live bottom of funnel in B2B stuff, you know, so in sales, you know, we're the people that have to have one-on-one -on -one meaningful conversations and try to help, you know, each prospect, right. And telling that story. And first thing you always learn is sort of like, you know, sort of benefits, not features, right? Like, how do I, how do I make a story out of this that actually matters? And I, I think that's, that's so relevant. And you, you know, essentially don't learn that in technology, uh, nor would I expect someone who, you know, built a product or, you know, really worked on a, a thing they do care about. They ought to care about the features, but that's a whole lot different than making a meaningful value story. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I don't know how much supplies outside of the tech world since I've been pretty much exclusively in it, but I think, you know, what, what people have built in technology is marvelous. I mean, it's incredible when you think of, you know, even just in the last five years, what have we seen come to fruition in our personal lives, our business lives? It is amazing. And because of that, people are really proud of it, right? I mean, it's like, wow, this is really cool. This is different. This is, this is neat. And Sometimes, I think a lot of times, that leads to, let me tell you all about this. Okay, wait. And I, I always kind of liken it to, you know, most technology companies, probably especially B2B technology companies, sure. the sales guys like to get on the train and they start telling their story as the train progresses and the customer's kind of running behind the train and you're hoping at some point in time the customer, like, gets it and jumps on the train with you. 
versus I think, you know, what I try to do when, from a marketing standpoint is let's start out really understanding what your problems are. We're in the train together and then we'll figure out how our product fits. And that's kind of the opposite way around that people naturally want to do. You feel like, oh, wow, I'm all excited. Like you started out today saying, tell me about yourself. Um, but you know, you also gave the little lead in and here's what the, we're going to talk about today. And because you did that lead in, then it made sense of me talking about me. But, you know, a lot of times in tech marketing, B2B marketing, you don't have that lead in. You just kind of jump into the, let me tell you how this widget, this whatever works. And then you're hoping that somebody reacts positively. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We we love in B2B and tech to just pummel people with this wonderfulness of the pile of, of things that we've put together. <laughs> and you kind of go... I think that in some senses, in in early categories, that works because you need to describe new stuff in a way that people can understand it. However, in a crowded space, and let's face it now, everything is becoming a crowded space. There's very few new things where I need to go like, let me explain to you this feature. You know, more so we're, we're finding ways to better solve problems. And you know, you almost want to make the product and feature disappear. That there's standard ways to approach problems, but right now, like, let's look at the business story of it. And I, I think I don't know why it's so easy to do that wrong, <laughs> you know. But that that's what happens, and we all have a tendency to not do it well. So that's right. Well, you know, it's. I think one of the things that's really interesting, especially about the B two B landscape, is it's a really risky purchase. You know, you're talking about typically big dollars. And I think for many people, the fear is greater to do something than not do something. Um, you know, that's, that is the principle of early adopters. You find the people that are really motivated to go make a change in their business. But for most people, that's scary, right? I'd rather just kind of sit around and, and do what I'm doing and not take the risk. And the higher value that the product is and the more change management that's required, the riskier it is. I remember, you know, when I worked at that first consulting firm, Regis McKenna, who was the founder, used to have this graph and he would say, if Coke and Pepsi are at one end and heart surgery is at the other, you behave very differently, right? You don't wander around and say, hey, should I buy a Coke or a Pepsi? Which one do you like better? You know, you might have your personal preference, but you do whatever it is. But if you, you know, God forbid, have to have heart surgery, you're going to ask every single person you know. And buying B2B high-end goods, especially like technology-enabled products, that's a lot more like heart surgery than it is like buying a Coke or Pepsi. So you need a lot of information. You need to to de-risk the purchase. You need to get people comfortable. And you need to get them really feeling like, wow, I'm going to be a hero, not a somebody who gets fired. Right. And yet we know from the, you know, all the research about buying now is, that you know, nobody wants to talk to us guys down at the bottom, you know, sales rep is the, the last thing people want to consume information and, uh, you know, not have to deal with a human as much as possible, which I, I guess would be, you know, so when I read about the platform that, that you all have, you know, it makes a lot of sense to try to, you know, just scrub the noise out as, as much as possible and help people at least narrow the choices. Um, you know, you can look at any ecosystem or uh, sort of 
those pictures of all the ways to address Marcom or all the ways or, you know, sort of sales technology or God bless, whatever else, you know, and, and there's thousands of options of point solutions and, you know, sort of cross-functional solutions and buying that has to be awful, <laughs> you know? So um, I, I think that and one who has to deal with procurement as a supplier, you know, I, I would appreciate the opportunity to just, have some software do the work to point out what I'm good at. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, our focus at Globality is specifically on services or indirect goods. And those are even harder because how do you compare, as you said, a Marcom service? Like if I'm going to choose a PR firm, it's harder to say, oh, this one objectively is a lot different or better. So you can look at, you know, the, the objective variables like where do they have offices and how many people they have. But what you really want to know is have they been super successful doing handling clients just like me? And what are, the genius of our software is we not only give you the objective variables, but we also make more um, comparable those harder to compare variables. We, we really yeah. give you a sense of them and we put people then therefore on an equal playing field. And that's really where you know, both the diversity angle comes in, but also just the ease and the, um, you know, w w uh, the making the right decision more quickly. Because if you could see, gee, here's the really comparable variables across a whole range of objective and potentially more subjective criteria and be able to weigh what's most important to me. Do I want a small firm? Do I want a big firm? Do I want um, global coverage? Do we want local coverage? Do I want somebody who really has ties into the national media or does a lot of broadcasts? Or do I want somebody who's more or, you know, a firm that's more um, focused on the trades? I mean, there's all those kind of things that go into the decision making of how do I choose? And what our platform does is everything from creating the RFP without having to do the RFP. So it basically has natural language processing and AI that just takes you through a series of questions. So it's like you and I having this conversation. Gee, if I could create an RFP this way, wouldn't that be so much nicer than I have to sit down and fill out a spreadsheet and send it around by email to a whole bunch of people? And then sharing that input with, you know, being able to look at our marketplace, if you don't have your own suppliers, figuring out which ones really meet those criteria best, and then fielding the brief or the, you know, the request out to the suppliers and then getting their responses back. So you have both the, the um, uh, objective and the subjective there together and the responses of the um, supplier as well as your requests all in one place and super easy. Um, that's just a revolutionary way to make decisions better and faster about how you spend your money, which is foundational to a lot of what companies do. So let me ask, as, as a supplier, and, and it's interesting, we talk about like the software allows you to sort of do natural language, you know, development of briefs, RFPs, and I was like, I totally resonate with how you would want to do that as someone who wants to buy. But I can also say on the supplier side, the more niche, the maybe smaller, and I'm not talking crazy small, you know, like X million dollar type of service delivery firm will very often look at an automated or, you know, obviously broadly distributed RFP and go, it's just not worth it. Like we're not going to spend the time to do this. So on the supplier side, 
we find RFPs sometimes eliminate the the players that could provide the actual service. How do you mitigate that? What our solution does is it really presents the best suppliers for every need. So we're not trying to field the RFP or suggesting that our customers should field their RFP to, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands. I mean, I think, you know, a typical um, customer of ours will have a very limited panel of suppliers that they'll actually consider. Now, if they're going to invite a new supplier, I, I just, you know, was trying to drink our own champagne and I did a RFP for a particular marketing service that I'm looking for through the platform. And it gives you the ability to also have a dialogue with the supplier. So, for example, before I sent off the RFP, I gave I put in a little bit of the here's why I'm sending it to you. And it was a personal note. Maybe everybody doesn't do that. But I was thinking of the same thing you were just talking about, Ledge, of the, gee, well, you know, if you get this out of the blue, are you even going to bother to do it? And being able to explain that you've already been curated, you've already met, you know, our first set of criteria we get a pretty high response rate from the suppliers. And I think on the other side, it does give new suppliers a chance to get into the roster, which is hard. Um, and that's the whole make the playing field more level for, you know, the whole broad set of suppliers in the economy. You know, our mission really is to level the playing field in the economy as a company. Now, you know, working with the biggest suppliers in the world, there's many of them who will say, too hard to onboard a new supplier. We're just going to use the ones that we already have. But it's interesting because over half of the time, people actually choose a supplier that was not their preferred supplier going into it. So that's that's a high percentage, you know, where you think you know who you want. And if you think, especially for these um, high-end services purchases, so much of that has been done on a handshake. You know, these are the people I used last time. These are the people I used at my last company. I'm just going to keep on doing it. And not only do you potentially not get the best um, supplier for that particular um, need, but in addition, you probably overpay. So as a supplier, you may not love hearing that, that, you know, this kind of solution fosters better price transparency and potentially more price competition. But on the other hand, you know, as a as a company and as a procurement team, you really should be getting the best supplier for the best price. Yeah, absolutely. No, I don't I don't think there's any issue from, you know, suppliers. We understand, we should understand that, you know, price transparency is important. And the experience of being a supplier, you know, I've had all these types of things where they make you jump through these ridiculous hoops and join some awful portal that looks like it's from, you know, 1997 dial up all to get to the, you know, the PDF that then is going to ask you to do 35 hours of work to be considered and follow their rubric. And you're kind of just like, you know what? <laughs> it's not worth it. Well, I'd love you to try ours. You know, we have our assistant that's her, her name is Glow, and Glow takes you through the process easily and in natural language and asks you questions, and Glow learns from what you've said, and then if you've already answered a question, you know, because you probably also find many of the manual RFPs or the spreadsheets, they're really repetitive. It's hard, you know, you're like, hey, didn't I just answer this? Okay, you're asking me again, or, you know, this, I already told you this isn't relevant, and now you're going to ask me about my offices in Asia. <laughs> Um, and Glow knows that and won't ask you the things that aren't relevant. I really want to hang out with Glow. Glow sounds Glow sounds awesome. And and that I bet in the audience, ourselves included, you know, 
people are probably thinking, hey, this is a thing that I, you know, as a as a service provider, I'd probably want to be available to the clientele. How do you how do you handle that? Is it like almost a marketplace type of perspective? Do you have to be invited as a supplier? You do. We you know, we curate all of our different categories. And, um, you know, we have, I think, approximately 25,000 suppliers now in our base. So it's, it's broad because we're covering the globe and we were working in a number of different categories. Um, we do, you know, invite suppliers. We add to it all the time because our customers are adding to it. And we actually do rate suppliers um, after their projects. Um, so it's a little bit of the, you know, Uber, Lyft, whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, who's done a good job on a project before, um, very much of the, you know, kind of marketplace dynamics. And that's really what we, you know, when our founders first started the company, they wanted to bring that kind of marketplace, the positives of those marketplace dynamics of allowing more people to compete, having that transparency, having that ability to rate um having the ability to grow the marketplace, make it safe, and be able to make sure that the suppliers on there were all curated suppliers. So it is very much of a private network versus a public network. Um, sure. So best way to get on the platform is um, find one of our big customers and get them to, to put you on, yeah, on one right. of the panels. No, that's cool. Very, very, very good dynamics there. You know, I, I like that as, a, as someone that deals with a lot of procurement we all want it to be easier. You know, I think that's important. And, and dealing with the, the contracting process and becoming a vendor, uh, you know, what's very interesting for us, like I'll just say for, for example, content allies, right? We get consumed by marketing folks at companies who very often have not even thought about the fact that it's going to take two months for us to get through the labyrinth of even becoming a vendor. And uh, you often get knocked out just because of the time frame of the people at your at the company don't know how one becomes a vendor. They contacted you because they want your service. And uh, that that whole I often see is is challenging. So I could completely see where, like, if you could streamline this, there's a communication that ought to go out at the client, your client in order to say, you know, listen, here's how we do this. And don't just go out Googling for somebody with two weeks to go, <laughs> you know, and sort of go, oh, yay, we're going to start a thing. Because we know, like, we're, we're never going to get through the gauntlet for that on the supplier side. Well, and if you, yeah, and, and our most successful deployments are the ones where they do just what you're saying. You know, if they put in place a process and people understand it, they know how to use it, then, then you get to a really good outcome. And it really is a partnership. I think, you know, in some places people kind of go, oh, crap, you know, do I have to go do this? But the reality is it's way easier to go through a process than it is to try to figure it out and then find out you can't do, you know, easily onboard or, you know, pick the supplier you want or get them working as quickly as you would want them to be um, working with you. So um, that's that I think is, you know, one of the um, decisions that we or the guidance that we offer to our customers are here's some best practices. You know, the more that the process can be smooth, the process can be easy, you can really take people through it. The more people are going to want to participate in it and the better outcomes you're going to get. So let's talk about your your path. You know, I love to do like a, a sort of 
lessons learned, experiences. Uh, I like to say, you know, speed bumps I hit too fast on the way uh, on the highway, you know, types of stuff, or maybe even, you know, walls I hit that I'd like to tell somebody else not to hit. You know, I don't know. You got any good fail forward stories for us? Well, I'll start with the positive. I always like starting with the positive. Um, you know, one of the things I've, I, you know, I've often said, and I counsel my kids about is do what you love. Like if you, you know, don't follow the, I should do this, or I have to do this, or this is the company I'm supposed to work at. Do much more of the, I'm going to do something I love. Because even if you're working for the place that nobody's ever heard of, and even if it's not the most successful outcome, if you have a great experience, you're growing, you're learning, you'll have a great personal narrative. And that's what people react well to. You know, if you think about when you're getting a job, you're you're selling yourself, you're marketing yourself. And the better your narrative is, just as we've been talking about a corporate narrative, the more likely you are to be able to get the best opportunities for yourself going forward. So I've always kind of just followed my heart and 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 thought about where are the places where I can make a difference. You know, I won't, it's interesting. I now have two kids who are entering the workforce and they always talk about passion. And I don't necessarily think that you have to combine every one of your passions with what you do at work. Um, I think that's really hard. You know, for example, my personal passion is travel. And I actually have worked with travel companies. That was really fun. But I also get to travel outside of work. So, you know, I'm not looking for something that necessarily fulfills every one of my needs in my life. In fact, sometimes it's nice to have some of the separation. But I think it should be something where you wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, I actually am looking forward to doing that job today. Um, And I think that I'm going to learn more you know, tomorrow than I did today and more the next day than I do tomorrow. You have to be growing, learning, and really a lifelong learner. And I think, you know, one of the, I know the other topics you probably want to get into is what's happening right now or, you know, what, what, what makes you successful. I think there's never been a time where agility is more important. Being able to take what you're good at, but, but learn more, reinvent yourself, be able to, you know, kind of twist and turn as, as you see your career path. I don't think any of us are in the generation that, you know, certainly my parents and my grandparents were in where you got a job and you were probably there for your, you know, a good part of your life, if not your whole life. Um, It's much, much more fluid. And so I think being able to create your own reality being able to manage um, your path forward is really important and recognizing that the unexpected is going to be the expected. Um, whatever you thought yesterday <laughs> might not be true tomorrow. Living through COVID, if we didn't learn that lesson, I don't know what we, um, how we could learn that. Uh, but it's true too in your personal life. You know, you talked about speed bumps. Um, you know, for me, you know, there's certainly been speed bumps just, you know, I've been in companies that haven't been very successful and have had to do fire sales. And I've been obviously most recently in companies that have gone public and been quite successful, especially if you're working with emerging growth companies, you're taking a risk and you're making a bet. And at the end of the day, it may not be the most financially lucrative, but if you can walk away and say, gee, I'm better at doing my job today, I've learned things then it's all worthwhile. Um, I guess it depends on your personal profile, but at least for me, that that's you know what I prioritize and what's really served me well throughout my career. 
And then I think if you look at the personal side, especially being a woman in business and a woman in tech, there's not been a lot of people that look like me throughout much of my career. So being able to figure out how do you create your own reality, how do you fit in, but maybe not fit in, but still succeed is a challenge and continues to be a challenge. And being a mom, inevitably, kids have challenges. Um, At one point in time, I had a you know, step back from my career for a few months because my daughter was in the hospital and life brings all kinds of surprises and you prioritize things as they go and you make your choices as they go. But I think being true to yourself and being able to be really clear on what's your own North Star is really helpful. And at least from my personal um, point of view, I wouldn't make my North Star money because I think money's hard. I think you'd get it's great if it comes, but I think if you just chase money, you probably are not going to be as successful as if you chase happiness, lifelong learning, balance, all those other things. It will come, but I think it's hard to just chase that. Sure. And I, I wonder, you know, if I were, if I were giving that advice, which mine would be similar, you know, to my 25 year old self, I probably would have laughed at that advice at that time, you know, so in in retrospect, looking back to the, you know, working in the 90s, right, you know, I kind of wonder if if that person would even listen to uh, the advice that I <laughs> that I'm giving that you're giving now. So yeah. I could pretty much guarantee you they won't because I'm having this discussion with my 22 year old son and my 24 year old daughter and especially my son. He's like, but I want to make money. Yeah. Like, great. So does everybody. Everybody wants to, everybody wants to spend money too. <laughs> so, yeah. And I try to, I try, I know I try to frame my advice in little chunks because the kids zone out pretty much, uh, you know, when I, we talk too much about these things, but I just say, listen, you know, here, let me explain to you a choice that I made and what happened there. And when you're presented with that choice, you know, the same choice will happen to you and you should at least know some potential outcomes. <laughs> And, and when you when you make a terrible expensive choice, um, you know you'll you'll be able to know maybe cut it off sooner. <laughs> be be able to make bad choices well. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know we were talking just a minute ago about how different our reality is than our parents and our grandparents, but also how different our kids' reality is than sure. than my reality. But I think that whole idea of choice is so much more at the forefront of where we are today. The fact that we're not locked into a role. And sometimes it's negative because you think, oh, there's unlimited possibilities out there. How do I choose the right one? And you can get almost frozen in place. But on the other hand, the knowledge that you're making a choice every day to do what you do and the company's making a choice every day to employ you, that's a bargain, right? That's a marketplace that we were talking about. And as long as that is in balance, it works really well. When it gets out of balance, then it's time to do something else. And that's all good. You know, you just have to be agile and and life is going to be a series of journeys. And um, I think, you know, I've read that the the generation entering the workforce now is probably going to have, what is it, seven to 10 different careers, not just, Mm -hmm. not not jobs, but careers. And you think about that unlimited choice, it's kind of scary to having that much choice, but it's also super exciting that you can really create your own narrative. I think it lends, if I think about like one 
thing that will matter is, is we used to call it networking. You know, you should network, you should build your network. And I think it's so much more uh, now about just, you know, you've got to expose yourself to as many people as possible because all the things are going to come from relationships and where networking maybe used to be a little bit more transactionally oriented. Now it's just like how many authentic conversations can I have with interesting people who later on, maybe we'll do something together. Maybe we won't. Uh, but you know, that, that connective tissue seems to be where all career moves, you know, kind of come from now. I totally agree with that. I mean, one of the other things that's really served me well in my career is the pay it forward, you know, take those extra minutes and, and just help somebody because I really do believe that that comes back to you in spades. It may not be from that particular person, but you were talking about building your network and it's both ways, right? It's up and down and it's across and being able to help people along the way, you know, answer questions, give advice, um, share things that didn't go so well, share things that did. That's, that's huge, I think. And um, something I, you know, strongly encourage people to think about is, you know, it always feels like, oh, gee, I'm so busy anyway, but taking those moments, that is how you build your network. And that is how, you know, things happen. And I'm always amazed at just taking those extra minutes to get to know somebody, to talk to them. They remember you and they're much more likely to, to, to help you in the future. And, you know, just really kind of amazing and surprising things that can happen. When I first, the, the it was probably my first week here. I woke up in the morning and I have the bad habit of always looking at my cell phone before I get out of bed, uh, which probably too many of us do. And there was an email from the um, representative that I had worked with uh, at NASDAQ on the NTAP IPO. And he had put my, you know, congratulations to the new chief marketing officer of globality on the um, billboard in Times Square. Like that's just is amazing, you know? It was it was the best thing ever because it's probably the only thing in my career that my mom has understood. She's like, I've been there, I know that, I get that, you know, because she doesn't get what I do, which is all good. But it was just one of those like amazing little pay it forward, pay it backwards, you know, kind of things where it's it's just those surprises that are so delightful. Or, you know, looking at the people you've helped and then you see them 10 years later and you're like, wow, they're awesome. Look at what they've done. And it's, I, don't, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, I just had an interesting thought about, you know, your your work and uh, at Globality is like that's that type of relationship with suppliers is so interesting because not only, you know, it's like we I know when we get a lead, for example, at any business, you know, we try we may not be able to allocate calendar time to them, but we try to just be helpful and give some kind of feedback. And I know as a supplier, when you, when you don't win a deal, you want to know why. And I think that that, that ought to be built into all those types of communications, like the, the human nature of business can be improved when we take out the administrative burdens, you know, and then we get a little more time. Absolutely. And, and making the playing field fair, right? If you participate and you feel like it's a fair fight, whether you'd rather win than lose. But even if you lose, at least you feel like you got a chance. Never having gotten a chance is hard. 
and, and just to learn from it and just say, you know, we chose somebody else because you did not make a compelling case on these points. Uh, if, if we all want to lift the boat, you know, that, that stuff's really important. You know, you can get qualified out and feel good about it if you learn something from the, the process. But I know the most painful thing is when you spend a week answering a document and you get no answer. You know, couldn't we all be more human on, you know, look, if you need to cancel a meeting, that's okay. Just tell me because my time's also valuable. And I think it's like, it's that type of thing that I hope as AI and process automation and things remove the burden of, you know, overwhelm. Uh, the, the utopia of it might be that we can all just treat each other like, hey, we're just people on the other side of the thing that also have a job. <laughs> Well, and if, you know, a lot of what our solution does is free people up to do higher value work. If you take away the administrivia, they do have time to have a conversation. Um, if you take away the, you know, sending around spreadsheets, they can spend a lot more time on making a good decision. Um, and that's really our goal is to take away with so much of the focus today and much of procurement is on just the get it done, not the make the right decision. And then even more so if you can be able to find the right suppliers and make sure that they are the best fit for the particular project, then I think you're in a different playing space than you might be today. Maybe we can invent, you know, like CX is, you know, customer experience. We can invent SX, which would be, you know, supplier experience. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I like that. There you go. You must be a marketer. <laughs> right, right. Always got to think of weird names to name stuff and make an acronym. So, <laughs> well, Pam, I, I love the insights. Thank you so much uh, for sharing. If, if anybody here is is resonating and you know wants to reach out, what's the best channels to do that? I'm on LinkedIn, Pam Klein-Smith, or you can send an email to me, pam.smith at globality.com. Well, I hope everybody does that. Pam, thanks for hanging out. Really enjoyed the conversation. Me as well. And thank you so much for inviting me, um, Ledge. It was a pleasure and look forward to hearing more of your podcasts. Fantastic. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.